Hello and welcome to another episode of Business Bites and I'm delighted that we're heading over to America for today's episode. We're heading south to Tampa Bay, Florida and I'm delighted to be joined online by Daniel Apke, business owner. Daniel, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Gary. Thanks a million for coming on and I think a lot of people will get great value in what you have to talk about today. For those who can't see you, Daniel is in his late 20s. I begrudge him for that. He has all his youth ahead of him. But I think it's very important for certainly an age demographic out there at the moment that, as we were saying before we started recording, just the saturation of content on TikTok and Instagram nowadays and people being given the impression that you can get wealthy very easily, very quickly. You know, you could have it in Bitcoin investments or doing online courses. You know, there's a variety of things constantly being being pushed out there, buying something for cheap from a factory in China and selling it then through accounts on Amazon or something like that. And it's just pushing this thing. And I think people are growing up with this belief that from a very young age, they can get rich quickly. And... Daniel has gone through some of those scenarios and what his goal and mission is, is to help people achieve financial freedom, but he's going to tell people how to do it properly. So Daniel, the spotlight is on you, no pressure. Tell us your story. So I started, first off, going way back to school, like when I was younger, you know, age 10 through high school, I was not a student. I couldn't sit down in class. I had bad ADD. I just got horrible grades. And that led me to when I was graduating high school, I wasn't getting into any colleges. So I just didn't have good grades. I wasn't getting into colleges. School was really never for me. I ended up taking a year abroad and I traveled around a little bit, took a year off, like a little gap year. And I was introduced to the business world. And I was working for actually in Tel Aviv at the time I was working for a record label company. And I just saw entrepreneurship and you know at its finest and people hustling and really just trying to make it happen and i fell in love with the fight and the game of entrepreneurship then so i ended up coming back and then i got into school after the gap year and i went to university here and immediately after that i got into real estate um, while working a nine to five job so I, had, I was an outside salesperson after university and i was just traveling around from business to business which was like the, i was selling building materials so i was going from home depot to lowe's and just traveling and while i was doing that I was just visioning what my future is. I have so much time alone, just sitting in a car. I was driving a thousand miles a week. And I just, I was listening to podcast after podcast, trying to figure out, you know, what's next. Cause I always envisioned myself as an entrepreneur. I always knew I could do more and I wanted to push myself. And eventually I heard of, uh, you mentioned it briefly, uh, Mike and Joe Bruska have uh, their high ticking drop shipping coaches pretty much. So they, they link up with us based suppliers and um, pretty much get under contract with US-based suppliers and then you start an e-commerce store. And that was my first introduction to the business world was online. It's called high ticket drop shipping. So it's not the traditional going to China, getting the products, bringing it and then drop shipping it here. It was we're linking up and partnering with legitimate, sustainable US-based suppliers. So it's all in-house here. And then that's what I did. That was my first ever real business, I'd say. But leading up to that point, I was buying rental properties. I still own rental properties today. And since that online um, high ticket dropshipping store, 
I I've had been in 12 to 15 different businesses and some have gone very well. Some have gone very bad and everything in between. And, you know, I was, I've been stretched very thin before from owning. I've, I've been on the opposite side where one business worked the e-commerce. So I started five different more. I'm like, Oh, I love this. This is easy. And then, you know, all things kind of hit, hit hell and came back at me. And, you know, there's just, I've been stretched thin and seen both sides of that as well. How does someone, you know, in their twenties end up buying places and, and renting them out? Yeah. The first thing I was in Cincinnati, Ohio at the time, that's where I'm from. And the Midwest in general, that's considered like the Midwest in America. I'd assume most of your audience is international, but yeah, the Midwest is relatively inexpensive compared to most of America. So being from there and I had good relationships, I knew good realtors and I had a lot of people I could trust. And then I I was making $45,000 at the time working an inside sales job and I had no expenses though. My car was paid off. I really, I was living off like $600 rent, $500 rent. So I was able to save like $12,000 my first year of working that job. And then I was able to save a little bit more. And then I partnered with my brother, Ron, and he had similar financial situations. When we linked up, we put half of our money in, put a, as low as a down payment as we could possibly get. We knew the building was good. The key was we knew we were getting a good deal on the building. It was before COVID and everything hit and everything just went berserks. So we knew we were getting a good deal and then everything else kind of worked out after that. So we put the minimum down. It was a really cheap building. It was a salon. So we were running a salon and then the top above it was a apartment above it. So it was a salon on the bottom apartment. That was my first ever real estate investment. Still own it today as well. Were you involved then in the business of the salon as well? Uh, not. I was more renting the booth, so I was managing the the business at the time with the goal of getting someone in there who would run it all, and that's what we did. So we were running it ourselves for a while. I was going in there every Friday collecting the rental booths. They were paying like $50 a day per booth. I'd go and collect that, kind of make sure everything's tidied up and good. But other than that, I was looking for someone to just take it over, and then they can rent out the booths, and that's what we do now. Excellent. So I suppose as the rent builds from one property, it helps with the cash flow and the deposit so you can go and get it to another property and so on and so on. Correct. Yeah. And then you get equity too. If you ever want to refinance out, you know, I, I bought that building for less than $100,000. It was listed for two fifty. The owners were just wanted to get rid of it. It was sitting on the market. They were reporting $0 income because it was all a cash business. So it looked like the business was just tanking. So we went in super, super aggressive. It's been sitting a long time and they ended up, you know, you do that a hundred times, you might get five of those, right? It's just a numbers game. So we ended up getting a good deal on it. And then, yeah, if you ever, there's, there's a couple ways you make money in real estate. One's the cash flow, which is getting harder and harder as prices and everything and interest rates drive up, but two is the actual equity as well. And then there's tax advantages, but the equities, you know, I bought that at a hundred. Now it's worth 350, 400. So I could always refinance out if I needed to. I don't, I don't play that game. I make my money elsewhere in land investing but I know it's there and it's it's wealth behind me if anything ever came up. And does any of that keep you up at night? The fear the, of the unknown, the stress, think the whole market going belly up? Not really, because I do a good job. I'm pretty diversified. I have a lot of cash and a decent amount of uh, real estate and then stocks. I'm, I'm diversified enough to where if any asset class really took a hit, and plus I have my actual businesses that are operating at a good cash flow too. And I feel like I'm balanced enough to, yeah, one's going to tank eventually. I mean, you know, life's long, something's going to happen, situations come up. And I'm, I think I'm prepared for that. And that's the key of not being too over saturated in one area. So is it more important to be cash rich than asset rich? I think so. 
I like cash. I like cash flow more. That's why I got into land investing, which we haven't really touched on. But uh, going from all those different business models I had, and then coming into the land flipping space, I saw an immense amount of cash flow, which I've never really seen before. And that way, I was able to take all that money, reinvest it back into the business, and also take it to other real estate and other businesses and like things we're talking about, stocks and other asset classes. Let's look at the land. Is that you go in, you see what's being zoned, whether it's for residential, commercial properties, agricultural purposes. You go in, if someone wants to offset the land or that there's maybe they've passed away and the family just want to pass on the estate. Or do you come in early on when someone wants to hold on to the land, you're kind of doing that aggressive negotiation to encourage them to sell? Little bit of both. Uh, the best landowners for us are the people who want to want to sell their land for whatever reason. They have finances they need to pay. In America, there's a lot of people that own land that have never been to their land. They inherited it. They live in New York, the lands in Alabama. That's a good portion of landowners here just from it being passed down. Some people we target, they don't even know they own land at times. Um, and there's things like that. And then some people, they need to pay the tax, the tax back paid, and it's about to get foreclosed on. And they you know, we go to them at the right time and they, they need it sold in two weeks or else it's going to get foreclosed and they're going to lose it in, to, in whole. So a little bit of both, but similar to the salon situation, Gary, it's all about buying the asset under market value. And that's what we do. It's a, it's a numbers game. We're not for everyone who wants to get the top market dollar. We come in and we undercut the market and we get people their money quick. That's our value proposition. If you need that money, we're going to get you. It's going to be 40 to 50% of market value. We're going to come in and we, we do that through blind offers typically which is us sending a mass amount of letters to a targeted area that has an offer on it and then a place for them to sign an actual price and the acreage and the property description and all that stuff. So we send out thousands and thousands of those. We get one deal to put it in perspective, one deal per every 2000 letters. So it's a numbers game. Well, it's, it's fascinating because I've never come across business models like this. And North America is, is huge. Um, it's big. How do you find all these places? Where's your, your source material? The, the first step of the business is targeting a market. So say we want to be outside of Atlanta, Georgia. We usually pick a decent sized metro area and then we go like 60 minutes away because then the metro area people start flocking away, go to the suburbs, or they just want land, recreational land, whatever that is. So we, we target these metro areas and go 60 minutes away. And then we analyze, you know, the average days on market in those areas and a bunch of different things like, you know, how much land's for sale that we're going to be competing with, how quick is it selling, the population density. We don't want to be over in a in an overly populated area for this business model or else it just it's harder to acquire land typically. So, we try to find a good middle ground and then we use a source right now called DataTree and we just plug in our filters. It's really simple. You you'll put Macon County, Alabama in there and then you'll put anything from 2 to 100 acres or whatever your criteria is you're going after and then you're pretty much just put in some vacant land filters so there's no structures on it and it just spits out a database of records and that's why a lot of people try to do this in some other countries and it can work in some countries um, we have a ton of people abroad in Ireland in Italy in Czech Republic all that stuff we have people doing this but they're doing it in the US because the data reporting is is much cleaner than a lot of different places. There's a lot of countries you'll go to because in Puerto Rico we were testing the market out and it's just really hard to get accurate data there and they they're not reporting it properly and things like that. So that's why uh, America is really easy with doing this. This business model can work anywhere, I'm sure. You just need to find a way to get clean data because it has the owner's name, the owner's mailing address and it's reported, you know, pretty accurately from the county to these data collectors and then it just spits out records 
And we pretty much just take all those records and do a mail merge, price it, do a mail merge and send out mass amounts of letters. There's a huge amount of research, though, I say, involved in all of this because you even need to get an idea of what the land is valued at before you go in with your offer. That's typically what we do. You don't need to do it that way. That's just what we found most effective. There's there's three methods, right? There's texting, mail, and cold calling. And then within, mail's been the most efficient by far for multiple reasons for us. But within mail, you have neutral letters. So I could say, hey, Gary, I want to buy your property in Macon County, Alabama. Give us a call, right? Just neutral, no price on it. And then there's the blind offers method, which is we're going to put a price. Hey, Gary, we want to buy your five acres in Macon County, Alabama for $55,000. We've tested out both of those. We've had more success with blind offers. That being said, it is more work up front. So we're going to have to take Macon County, Alabama now. And we'll chop it up into pricing segments and anything in Macon County, Alabama might be, you know, two to four acres price per acre is going to be the same. And then four to six, obviously, as you buy more acreage, the price drops down. So we price it based on price per acreage in certain areas of the county. It's, I'd say it's a little difficult at first, but after you do it once or twice, it's not rocket science. So you just got to, you really just have to take comps, figure out what pieces of land are worth in each acreage segment, and then split it up like that. And I suppose getting the offer of 55,000, it's harder to say no to 55,000 than it is to just a general query that someone might say, oh, I want to buy your land. Uh, Because people are saying no to an actual figure of money. Exactly. Um, And straight away, when you see 55 grand on a piece of paper, you can think of so many ways you could spend it. (laughs) Exactly. The mind goes into overdrive. So what hasn't worked then with the business models? Um, I just... I think most business models have potential. I think there are less sustainable ones. I always I always say land flipping is like a level nine, level 10 business opportunity because like you said, there's a ton of land in America. So you have high supply. The competition right now, it's relatively new for land investing the way we're doing it. So it's low competition and high supply. And I think it's really sustainable. So I always like to say land investing is like a nine or 10 versus, you know, you brought up drop shipping from China. That's a, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle. That's a level one or two. That's not going to be around for a, a long, long time, in my opinion. Yeah. And then you have things in the middle, like, are you familiar with real estate wholesaling? No. That's pretty much where it's very, very competitive. People are doing it in cities. So you go, so I would go to a house, an owner, and offer them pretty high amount. Say their house was worth like 160. I would offer them like 130, but then I'd get them under contract for 90 to 120 days and then try to find an end buyer, like an investor to come in. And then then I'll get like $10,000 assignment fee. That's wholesaling. That's not something that's in real estate, very, very competitive in the US. That's like a level four or five in my mind. Some of your listeners not, might know what wholesaling is, but that's a big, big business model in the US. It's just overly saturated and competitive. So like I said, I think a lot of these business models have potential. It's about picking one, going full force and giving it everything you have. Because a lot of the, a lot of people that are looking for this, they'll get targeted with an ad over here and an ad over here and then something else. And all these business models pop up. It's hard to stay focused. It's really, you have to pick a sustainable business, something that's going to be around in 20 years, that's providing value. That's the key. Who are you providing value to in your business, right? If you're a blogging company, which I've owned blogging companies, you have to get good information for people actually to want to come to your site and read and learn. So you're providing value to consumers on the back end who want to learn about whatever your niche is. For me and land, I'm getting people cash quick, and then I'm getting an opportunity for this land and putting it on the market to someone who wants that five acres 
that would have never been there if it wasn't for me. And I'm getting them a good deal as well. So I'm getting quick cash and then I'm providing an opportunity to someone to own that five acres. Um, so that's how I always look at it. Like dive deep into your business models, whatever you're doing and see what kind of actual value you're providing to the world, to your customers, to whoever it is. When I was drop shipping, I was making good money doing it, but they could have just gone really anywhere else and bought the same product for the same price, including the supplier. So I was just really a middleman um, through through advertising things. And you can argue my customer su- support, but I thought it was lower value than what I'm doing now personally. And that's how I like to look at things is from a value perspective, because then that correlates to profitability and that correlates to sustainability. And it's just going to be around forever. So let's say you buy this land in Alabama for 55k from someone living in New York who's no intention of ever visiting there. How long does it take on average then to flip to sell the land? It's changed a lot over the last before we used to put it on the market, you know, two years ago, and it would sell the week of um, it's changed. It's on average, it will be on the market about 45 days. On average, I'd say we get rid of 50% of the properties within two weeks. though, and then some of them sit six months. So that's pretty much it. It's like if it's there two weeks, it's going to be gone within two, three weeks or so, or it's going to sit for a while. And it, that comes down to the market selection when you're in the front end. You can usually predict these things. But if I'm in a slower area, say things aren't turning as fast, and I know that from my market research, I'm just going to offer them a little bit less. So I know that I can undercut the market a little bit less. If I'm selling that property for $100,000, and that's market value, but that's going to take six months, it looks like, I'll sell that at 85 and try to get rid of it quick. So we kind of just take the business model in slower areas, offer less, be more aggressive on the offer side, and then be more aggressive on the sales side to try to flip it quicker. And vice versa. If you're in hot areas, you know it's going to go quick. We might have to raise that bar a little bit to be aggressive. And then on the sales side, you know you're going to get market value or even a little bit more getting the bidding, bidding wars and things like that. So worst case scenario, if it's slow to sell, as long as you sell it above the 55K, you've made your profit. Yeah, and we're strict on buying, you know, good land. We want to buy really good land. Um, we analyze the land really well before we buy it. We get boots on the ground, drone photos, do a ton of due diligence on it. We've never lost money on a deal. We just haven't. And we've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deals. I don't know the exact count, probably close to a thousand now, but we've never lost money on a deal. We've been close. But that being said, we haven't lost money. And then was your business models affected heavily during COVID? COVID was weird because prices dropped, but demand stayed pretty strong. So like the market seemed to dip at one point for, for land. This uh, this is different than yeah. real estate. The market for land dipped for a good six months, but the demand was still there. We we're still selling things very, very fast. And then after that six months during COVID, things got hotter than I've ever seen it before. So are, are these the good times at the moment? Um, it's, it's slowing down. The real estate market in the US is uh, volatile right now. Interest rates are high. Uncertainties there. There's just people are getting more cautious with where they're putting their cash. In real estate in general, the market slowed down a lot. That being said, land's an asset class that has appreciated 11% on average the last 40 years. So it has a really good his- history. And that's partially because there's just, you can't create more land. And people know that land's a good investment. So a lot of our buyers are literally like, oh, I just want to put my money in land and do whatever. Maybe in 10 years, I want to build, but I can put that in. They feel safe about land. They feel safe about that as their long-term investment. So a lot of these people are mom and pops coming to us and tucking their money away for an investment because of the uncertainty in the market. So I'd say like right now is a pretty average time for us to buy and sell land. I wouldn't say it's anything crazy. It's not the hottest market out there, but we, we still are selling properties. 
I suppose what can make land valuable in a certain area as well could be, especially in the States and maybe more north than, than south of Florida, is there could be a big industry in that town, or, uh, a big factory or something mm-hmm. like that. And there's always the fear then that one day that company will shut and say, look, we're moving to Europe or whatever. And suddenly the town, which has relied heavily on this factory or this commercial entity providing jobs, the jobs are gone, the the value of housing and land and everything just drops overnight. That happens. Absolutely. And that's why this bit, I do have long-term land that I'm holding for long-term investments, but I'm very specific on those areas that I go in and want to hold. In terms of what you're saying, the how we mitigate that is one, when we analyze land, we're analyzing it for the next 90 days, not nine years, because we just need to flip it quick. So that's our business model is getting rid of it quick. So those long-term changes that will happen, like you're saying, don't come to as much of an effect. If, if there's a big factory there, or for example, in Texas right now, Tesla's building a ton of factories in Texas and they got massive factories. You go anywhere around that, all the landowners are going to know their land is very desirable and very expensive and everyone wants land there, right? And then in 20 years, Texas stops giving them all those tax incentives that they got to go there and they start, you know, then they move back to California to be in Silicon Valley. What happens then? That's what you're asking. And that's a really, really good point. That's why I'm very cautious on where I buy for my long-term holds right now. We have, I'm holding a property in Northern Kentucky actually, but every property that comes through my desk that I'm actually analyzing after my team gets it. I always look at it like, is this something I want to hold long-term? Because I am looking for more land to hold because it is a good long-term investment. And we talk about that diversification and all that. It adds to that as well. And do you go and physically visit all these lands before you make a purchase? I haven't been to one of them. (laughs) I really haven't. Not one. Let's say you're getting land in, so you're in Florida, you're buying land in Alabama. Who do you deal with on the ground there in Alabama? And how do you know who to approach when when trying to put these deals across and, and get your drone footage done and all that? Yeah. So the first thing we do, we analyze it on satellite. Pretty uh, there's, there's software. We use ID, land.id and you can go in, you can look at you know the wetlands, the slope on the property, the um, contour lines, which is the slope. You can look at the boundaries and all these, the access, and you can go on street view and look at the access from there. And you can get a really, really good idea of what's going on on that land from satellite. And then what we do, we send it through our due diligence as well, where we're looking at, you know, is there public utilities, water, are they going to need a septic, all of that stuff. Then we get with the zoning and we get the deed. We read very thoroughly through the deed, make sure there's no other people on it, make sure, you know, there's no broken titles. We get title insurance on everything. So we take it through this pretty rigorous due diligence period to where we feel, I feel 90% good about this land pretty much before we get any boots on the ground. We're like, I'm pretty sure this is going to go through. It's good land. It checks out with everything. It has neighbors on both sides of it and across the street, which shows that area is being built on that minimizes some risk that you might have. And then the last step is getting the drone out there or getting a realtor because we use realtors sometimes on the sell side. So if you're using a realtor, they can also help you and you've given them business. They can help you when you're buying it before you buy it to give you favors and say, hey, I'm, I'm buying this property. I just need you to take a look at it. Give me your thoughts. It appears to be wet in the front, right? We just wanted to see, make sure it's not a swamp or a marsh or anything. Make sure the land looks good. And then you can get a realtor to go walk on it or the drone person to give them whatever concerns you have. And then you get the pictures back. And that's kind of, we do that during title. So we already pretty much made a decision on that land. 
based on everything we knew and it's in title getting ready to close. And then we get the final boots on the ground and pictures and all that. And it's a huge amount of work at the same time. So again, there's, it's it's not that it's easy to make money. You have to have the right model, but you have to be able to work hard at it as well. For sure. Definitely not easy, but the upsides and profits, I mean, we're taking on average, we have a hundred percent return. So that $55,000 property, we're going to buy, sell it on average for $110,000. We have, we're doing a Right now, we're also doing a lot of subdivides where we're getting, you know, 300, 400% returns in six, eight months because we're taking a big piece of land, 150 acres, and chopping it up into, you know, 15, 10 acre properties. Um, and, and that, those are, that's, those are projects that are really easy. They're called minor subdivides. We're not putting a roads in and sewage and drainage like, like major subdivides, but, that's something where we're getting exponential returns and adding more value as well. So then all of a sudden, instead of offering 40 to 50% of market value, like I did in the scenario before, then we're offering, we can go up to 70, 80% because we know we're going to sell it for 500% after the project we're doing. So that's another thing we've been really, really focused on is getting bigger deals, higher ticket deals, just more expensive, more six and seven figure deals in our pipeline. And what sort of turnover then have you been doing in business? We do about a million dollars a month in land. Um, and then, so what we do now though, we have an educational program that teaches people how to buy and sell land. What happens is people come in with very little, they want their freedom. They don't have much money. They have a little bit to invest. They're ready to go. They have the mindset though. They start attacking deals. They get a deal. They bring it to us. And what we're doing now, we're funding a lot of other people's deals and then on a profit split on the back end. So that someone, you know, off the streets with that doesn't have that $55,000 without getting a loan and getting a bank loan. They'll come to us and other land investors. I'll underwrite the deal, say this is a good deal or this is a bad deal, or you need to get the price down, whatever it is. And then we'll put up 100% of the money and then come up with a profit split. And that's how we've really been able to grow our business without getting more deals necessarily with more mail and all that. That's one way we've been able to scale up. And that's great because that then takes you out of North America business-wise and lets you tap into other places around the world based on people working with your program. Yes. And all the foreign people in the program need to get deal funding or else the US takes, I think it's 10 or 20% cut of the sale based on foreign taxes for a sale of property. I think it's 20%. So it eats really big into it. And if you have, you know, since I'm buying the property, it's going to go in my name. Yes, you're going to do the work, you're managing the deal, but it's going to go in my name for safety purposes. And then we're going to have a profit split. That way they can avoid all of that and they can do it from abroad or wherever they are. Brilliant. And what sort of results then have people seen working with you on these programs? I mean, there's there's people coming in. I don't want to make it sound too unrealistic, but there are so much there's so much land in the US and so much opportunity. There are people coming in making good, good six figures a year relatively quick. It's you heard the process though, Gary. It's a lot of work. It's not easy. You got it, it's it's work, but the profit margin and sustainability makes sense for it. I mean, there's um Suzanne, she's in uh, I think she's Austria. She's a student, Suzanne. She just got a a deal. I think she's been doing it 10 months. She just got a deal for 625 grand. It's up for, I think, 1.3, 1.4. And we're also funding other other properties where she's buying for 50, selling for 100. She's going to make good, good, good money. And she's 10 months in and she's from you know another country not doing it here. Her time schedule a little bit needs to adjust. She's on the calls at night. I'm like, Suzanne, isn't it three o'clock in the morning where you are? Um, so she's putting in the work, but it's very, very doable. And just... With the experience you have, what do people need to 
avoid. I know you're talking about your level one and your middle levels and so on, but like you know, and we kind of had this conversation as well before we started recording of just the different sort of they're nearly like scams that are out there. They're making it out to people that it's there's so many ways you can get rich quick. But what would you tell people who might have money to play with or might need to earn an income quickly? What do they need to avoid? I think what you need is a business that can scale. You'll see a lot of arbitrage type of businesses where people are going into Target on their sales or Walmart, buying the products and then reselling them. You can make a little money doing that. I understand. But look for businesses you can get to six and seven figures to get you that real freedom you're looking for. Not, you know, that those are going to be so much work that you're putting in shopping. So I always look for scalability um, in terms of what to avoid. Like I said, you got to think of the value you're providing, like drop shipping. I would, I would a hundred percent not get into drop shipping, low ticket items, like the drop shipping in terms of bringing something in from China here, all the issues that happen between now and then I would, that's the number one thing I would avoid. I've done it, trust me. And I've done the high ticket model that I've been talking about and a lot of these other ones, but just think of the value you're providing the world and the customer and the supplier and everything else in between. You want it to, you want it to be high value from all sides or else it's just not going to work or you're going to be fighting an uphill battle. And you'll see that I, I got to see that because I went from these business models and then I got to land flipping and it was like landing on the moon with no gravity. It, like I was fighting such an uphill battle. We were, you know, I, some of the businesses I was fighting so hard to get three, four or $5,000 a month of profit, which might sound good, but then you know, you get to something like land flipping and you're making, you know, three, four, five, six times that on one deal. And then you just got to realize I just got to get more deals. And it's just, it was fighting an uphill battle. That being said, I was able to, some of these businesses, you, I sold a business on empire flippers, which is an online business e-commerce store where they facilitate the sales. And there is a market for, you know, blogging sites. There is a market for Amazon FBA sites. There is a market for, I had a Kindle publishing company where I was publishing Kindle books. So a lot of these do work, but you you want to avoid anything that's not actually providing value. What's the goal? What's the big ultimate dream finally? You know, I'm right now I'm really, really focused on building out Land Investing Online, which is the educational company. Um, I hired a CEO this year, a few months ago, it wasn't that long ago, but out of California and he's taking over the actual investing side. And my brother and I right now are building out a tech business to go hand in hand with the land investing business. It's kind of a space that's untouched. And people want it and need it to help their businesses. So being so deep in land right now, I understand, you know, some of the flaws there are and things that are missing. So we're creating some solutions right now to to fix those that should be big. But ultimately, you know, my life's going to be wrapped around helping people attain more freedom. I don't know if it's going to be through land. I don't know if it's going to be through just going around the world and speaking to people. I don't know where that's going to take me. I'm writing a book right now. I've been writing a book for about a year. It's almost finished. But it's all around freedom because I I was stuck in that job. I had that nine to five. I was driving around. I was miserable. You know, I gained a lot of weight. I was unhealthy at the time. And I saw what being trapped looked like. And I, I was not in a happy place. And, you know, within 12 months of hard work, I was able to flip my life around due to some of the businesses that I have. So I want to help other people really realize that that's possible and then achieve their their dreams and goals. Absolutely fascinating. If people want to find out more about Daniel's work, you can follow him on Instagram. It's Daniel Apke, A-P-K-E, or you can also Google him and you'll come across his website as well. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on Business Bites today. Thanks for having me, Gary. Mm -hmm.